Okay, <clears throat> last night I spoke about freedom from the known, freedom from the familiar, and I spoke about samsaric experience as being that which is most familiar to us, just to remind you again and have a little bit of continuity with last night, samsaric experience, the experience of going round in circles, that feeling of entrapment, the sense of creating ruts which you can't escape out of. Again, in a way, all these things I've said are synonyms. They all mean something very similar. But this feeling of entrapment is the primary one because it comes to us with a tone. And the tone is the tone of dukkha. Just to remind you, dukkha, of course, is this great baggy word in Pali and Sanskrit, which doesn't mean suffering. It means all of the things from the minor irritations of life all the way to the sufferings of life. Everything, in a sense, and it's not a terribly good word. I find it a little flabby in English, but uh, everything that we find unsatisfactory in our life. I had it once described to me as, and this was by one of the Dalai Lama's tutors when I was studying in India, and some of you who've been at my teachings before would have heard this, which is, he described dukkha in this way. He described it not like a sharp pain, something really violent and vicious and painful. He described it as like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. Um, As you can probably see, that doesn't start off terribly painful, but with repetition, the skin starts to come off. Um, It's a very, very painful experience, ultimately. And that is the tone that we find a lot, not all. Remember, I'm not trying to paint a blanket black picture of our lives, but that's what the majority of a lot of our experiences have that as its undertone of unsatisfactoriness. Things are not quite what they want, but what we want. Now, when I talk about freedom from the familiar, there is one thing which we're all too achingly familiar with, um, so much so we're full of it, and it's called self. We're full of ourselves. The novelist and writer Iris Murdoch once referred to the great, big, fat, restless ego. Um, in many ways, I'm sure most of us can identify that. It's, it's fat because it obfuscates our vision. You know, we cannot see round it. It's that which blocks us off. So when we're talking about the development of metta, karuna, loving-kindness, affection, compassion, joy in mudita. What is the greatest hindrance to the development of these virtues, for want of a better word? What is it really stops us from moving out into them? Because I'm sure most of us sit here, even if we're struggling with 
you know, the practices, and I'm sure many of you are struggling with these practices during the day. They don't come easily. Sometimes it's just easier to sit and follow the breath rather than try and develop, for example, friendly feelings towards yourself and others. Most of us, I think, even if we are struggling in this way, would at least say, well, they're nice ideas, even if we can't do them. And so what's the major impediment? What's the major hindrance to the development of these virtues? Which I think most people will subscribe to as being things that are worth having, things that are worth doing in a day, being kind, being compassionate, being joyful. In fact, we can even wake up in the morning, get out of bed, you know, with the intention to, I don't know, demonstrate these things in our life, in the day, and somehow on the way to work we screw up. (laughs) Things go wrong. Now, I'm joking about this, or at least making light of it, for a special reason, because the major impediment, of course, is the notion of self. So I want to spend a little time this evening exploring this notion of self and what it is and what it is not. Because in terms of Buddhist practice, and I do say Buddhist practice rather than Buddhist thought, because I really don't want to make a distinction here, the Buddha, and I really want to add this just kind of in brackets at this stage, the Buddha did not teach in the Pali Canon anything that didn't have practical value. He was not interested in philosophizing for philosophizing's sake. He was not interested in metaphysics for metaphysics' sake. He was not interested in intellectual thought just for the sheer hell of it. He was interested in practical outcomes. And so one of the elements which he teaches throughout the canon, and in fact is encapsulated in something called the Trinakana, which is actually the three marks of existence, is something which many of you will know, I'm sure most of you at least have come across and stumbled across in your reading or hearing Dharma talks, which is anatta, which is usually translated very badly as the doctrine of no self. Now, I'm going to just alter that slightly and say, if we're going to call it a doctrine, and I don't particularly like that phrase of doctrine, that... This is actually the doctrine, not of no self, but of not self. An awful lot hangs on that one consonant here. Now before I explore that with you, and what I'm going to do is explore it with you and hopefully then try and again connect it with these practical things that we're trying to do. Before I explore that with you, I wanted to say that the Buddha's path The Buddha's way, something, again, which most of you should be familiar with, is mostly described as a middle way, a way between extremes. And the two extremes, in particular, in terms of thinking processes that we possess, are eternalism and annihilationism. In the long discourses of the Buddha, the Digha Nikaya, you'll find a 
Sutta, a discourse right at the beginning of the Diganakaya, which is known as the Brahmajala Sutta. The Brahmajala Sutta is the Brahma's net, or the net of views. In this, the Buddha delineates, and it's actually a very nice snapshot of the Buddha's India at the time, he delineates 62 different philosophies, 62 different religious philosophies of his time. All of them he refers to as being wrong view, not appropriate view. All of them divide into either being eternalistic or annihilationistic or nihilistic. In other words, there is the doctrine that something goes on forever, which was actually a very prevalent Hindu view, not unlike and slightly akin to the Christian doctrine of something like the eternal soul, something which can't actually be destroyed and that would go on forever. The Hindu view of the period, which actually wasn't really Hinduism, but it was something that grew into Hinduism, was of an entity which couldn't be destroyed, something that couldn't change, something that was bound to a cycle of reincarnation until it was liberated, until it attained moksha or liberation. On the other hand, there were people not unlike, in many ways, materialists within our own culture who basically said, this is it, folks, you know, Their philosophy was very simple. Eat, drink, be merry. (laughs) Because this is it. Uh, Nothing follows um, from our actions whatsoever. And this was nihilistic. It's a very reductionistic view of human life. Now the Buddha was trying to steer a clear way between these two extremes. Between this extreme of something going on forever and something having no outcome, nothing carrying over whatsoever. This might prompt, hopefully, questions later on as well. However, the Buddha's view, as I say, was somewhere in between. In fact, as I often say in groups, the West holds a very non-middle way view as well encapsulated in Western logic, the logic of Aristotle, is something called the law law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction is that something is or it is not. Um, Another way of describing that same law, and I'm just saying this to obviously back up a point I'm making here, is that it is actually called the law of excluded middle. So actually, in Western thought, there cannot be a middle way in Western philosophical thought because it leads to contradiction. Now, the Buddha himself was trying to actually discern the disease of our entrapment, how, if you like, we got ourselves into the mess that we do. At the start of one of the suttas, the Buddha, poses a conundrum, and the conundrum is, who's going to untangle the tangle? And the tangle is you. Yeah. So it's who's going to untangle the tangle? What's going to untangle this knot 
And he goes on to describe how this knot is kind of surrounded with moss and all sorts of things which have accumulated on it. But that's the question he's posing. How are we going to, in other words, in modern terms, get ourselves out of the mess that we find ourselves in a lot of the time? How are we going to do that? So that's the question that's constantly in the background of whatever he's doing. Now, there are two ways, and again, this might sound rather technical at this stage, and hopefully I can pull it together so it all sounds very practical. You'll have to judge. There are two ways of asking a question. There really are two major ways of asking a question. One is, what is something? And that's most of the ways that we ask questions, particularly in the West. What is this? What is that? Um, There's a figure in the history of Western thought, who most of you will have heard of, called Socrates. Socrates, the philosopher, who's written up in the words of Plato in many, many dialogues, which are good fun to read if you've never read them. They really are quite easy to read. Um, But Socrates goes around basically being a pain in the bum of Athenian society. He goes around asking questions like... um, I don't know, you're a lawyer, tell me what justice is. And by the time that Socrates has finished with them, he's shown the lawyer that he knows absolutely nothing about justice. He hasn't got a clue what it is. Or he goes to an ethicist and says to them, what is the good? And by the time he's finished with them, they know nothing about the good either. Because all these people do is they produce instances of what it is. He says, for example, to soldiers, what is courage? What is bravery? Now, in asking that sort of question, what are you asking for? When the lawyer gives examples of justice, why isn't Socrates happy with the examples? Why isn't he happy with the examples the soldier gives of what courage is or what bravery is or the ethicist in what is goodness? Because Socrates says to them, and I'll get back to the point in a minute, that he says to them, of course, that what you, all you've given me is instances. You haven't told me what the essence of goodness, justice, bravery, or whatever it is under consideration is. And he does this virtually to the whole of Athenian society. Now you can see why he probably got himself put to death for this, um, being a real pain, as I say, to Athenian society. Now, the whole point of what I'm being trying to say is that what is being required out of the what is question is an essence of something. In other words, what makes all instances of justice, justice? What is the common thread that runs through it all? And I hope you're going, why is he saying this? Why is he telling me this? I'm telling you this because this is not the kind of question the Buddha asks. It's actually the kind of question that's particularly asked when you're looking for the essence of something, for the indestructibility, for the timelessness of something, you're usually pointing to something essential within it. The Buddha's question, unlike the what is question, is actually a how is question. How is it? 
In asking that, as opposed to the what is, the Buddha in saying how is something, is asking how does it work? How does it function? Not what is it essentially. Now, I hope it doesn't take too great a leap of imagination to see as soon as you ask what is the self, you have to come up with an essence. And this is exactly what the thinkers of the Buddha's time were doing. They were asking, what is the nature of the self? And they came up with an answer. And in Sanskrit, the answer they came up with is Atman. In Pali, it's just Atta. This is the true self, the indestructible self. That which is, as some of the Upanishads say, and is even echoed in a later text called the Bhagavad Gita, which those who are familiar with yoga will know as well, cannot be produced and it cannot be destroyed. It is eternal. This leads into some very dubious morality at one point in the Bhagavad Gita because Krishna says, you know, go ahead and kill the others on the other side of this battle because you don't really kill them. Their self is indestructible. It's neither produced nor destroyed. It will go on. The Buddha, and I'm just putting this historically just to help you understand the thinking behind this, the Buddha in asking his how is question is flying in the face of saying that there is anything essential, anything fixed. The answer that was given by the people of his time, the answer that was given or searched for in the Socratic method was for something that wasn't going to change. I hope that has echoes here because ever since the first night I've been talking that the Buddha's message is of radical contingency. Everything is changing. Nothing remains the same. Nothing is fixed at all. Isn't it rather odd sometimes that um, we think, well, everything is changing. And most of us can sit here quite easily in in a group like this and subscribe to this. Everything is changing. Everything out there, the seasons change, the weather changes, the grass turns... You know, everything is moving and shifting and changing. Not me. (laughs) That sounds rather odd and rather arrogant, doesn't it? When put in that way. That's not me. I'm not changing. There's something fixed within this. Self that is me, that is not changing. And notice all the pronouns I've used. Me, I, etc. In trying to describe this. Well, the Buddha's question was not to search for something fixed. In his questioning, he was trying to say, in a sense, how is this phenomena, which we label as being self, how does it work? What's required for its functioning? In investigating this, And this has to be an investigation. You can't suddenly start believing in not-self. It has to be an investigation. And in fact, uh, I remember, again, my own time in India in the monasteries. In India, again, the same tutor of the Dalai Lama after we'd been performing this particularly horrendous whole series of meditations 
which was to look for the self. You know, was yourself in your body? Was it in your hair? Was it your teeth? Was it your consciousness? Was it this? Was it that? And we did this for weeks on end. You know, just going through this catalogue of it. Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? I got really annoyed <laughs> doing this, at this procedure. I kept going and asking these questions day in, day out, and day in, day out. And one day I went up to him and I said, why are we doing this? You know, we've been doing this for weeks. <laughs> And he sat there very patiently. And Tibetans are very pragmatic, actually, a lot of the time. And he kind of went, um, well, you know what it's like. You know, when you've lost your purse or your wallet. He said, I sort of go, yes, what? <laughs> what do you do? And he said, well, you know, well, when you've lost your purse or your wallet, you, you look in every possible place where it might be until you find out that you've lost it. I can remember this when I lost a car once when I had it stolen. I walked around the car park about 50 times looking for it. <laughs> Not quite believing it wasn't there. And, and it's a similar procedure of looking for every possible place until you find that you didn't actually have this fixed thing in the first place. Now, this is what the Buddha is trying to get us to investigate. Now, I've kind of joked about it, and it was very kind of funny at the time, but there's a very serious import to this, which is that we're not who we think we are. We think we are something fixed, solid, stable. Well, actually, I don't know about the stable bit, but never mind. (laughs) We think we're certainly something fixed um, and continuous, and have and possess something which actually many people in the West take very seriously. Identity. And search for their identity. You heard that question? No. Who am I? Or somebody goes off to search for themselves. What exactly is it? The the novelist, um, short story writer, Catherine Mansfield, once said, she said uh, she was very perplexed Uh, when people said to her, be true to thyself. She said, be true to thyself. I can't really understand what that means because I feel like a concierge in a rather large hotel. You know, in other words, with a hundred guests in the house, um, with nothing there that was myself. This search for the self is the search, of course, for something fixed. And throughout religious philosophical traditions the world over, this has often been a commonality, a common search for something fixed and unchanging, which is going to constitute, and you must have heard this phrase, your real self. There used to be a card going around, a little cartoon card, I don't know if you've ever seen it, um, which was a, a card of a man going to search for his real self in the Himalaya. And it had a picture of it said Stanley went to the Himalaya to search for his real self. And you see him climbing up a mountain with a backpack. And standing at the top of the mountain is a man who looks identical to the one climbing up with the backpack, except dressed in a pinstripe suit with a briefcase. And this was his real self. <laughs> it's almost as ridiculous as that, searching for your real self, searching for something fixed, searching for something unchanging. 
Nietzsche, the German philosopher, once said, of course, that the whole history of philosophy has been a revenge against time. Always searching for something outside of time. Searching for that which is immutable and unchangeable. The Buddha says, and this is the radicality of his message, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as that which does not change. Everything changes. In fact, his final recorded words, if we're to believe the Buddha's, you know, if we're to believe the Pali Canon, his final words were everything compounded is evanescent, is you know, changing. Strive on diligently. He's saying, even in the face of it, in the face of this relentlessness of change, which is the change of ourself, have the courage to strive on, to go on, to produce meaning in our lives. Okay, to return a little bit, just to come back, it's just veering off slightly here, to return to this notion of the self. So he's saying, effectively, Unlike thinkers throughout history, but particularly thinkers in his time, and unlike almost, and this is what I would, this is why it's so difficult in some ways to grasp this, unlike almost our intuitive sense of who we are, that there is nothing fixed within us. There is nothing fixed and unchanging. The Buddha, in trying to describe this, says, Rather than one thing, fixed and unchanging, what we have is a series of interrelated processes, all dependent on each other. There is the process of the physical form. I'm not going to go into great detail, but I just want to give you just a little picture here. There is the process of the physical form, which includes obviously all of the tissue, the bone, the lymph, the blood, the fluids, everything that goes to make up this physicality. Who I am in terms of my physical form. However, nothing, as even modern science would confirm about this, is fixed within this. Cells are being renewed. The skin is being lost. I've only got to do that and probably thousands and thousands of little skin cells drop away everything is being renewed so is the physical form the same form let's put something else into the equation aging into it as well it's changing if you are searching for your physical form and I, I don't suspect anybody here would probably do this but everybody searching for their physical form as being their self would be really onto quite a loser. <laughs> you know, I remind me of this every day I look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. That uh, I'm fighting a losing battle here, as we all are, in terms of if we identify with the physical form, then what does it produce? It produces a sense of unsatisfactoriness. No matter what we do to try and stem the tides of ageing, the tides of this sort of movement towards death, is always going to be fairly futile. We might be able to 
arrest it slightly, but we're not going to stem its tide in its relentless march towards the sea of death. That's not going to happen. So inevitably, if we identify, as many do, I might say it was silly, but actually many people do, identify with this physical form as being their self, they're going to suffer. And I use that probably in the fullest sense of the word, they will suffer. So that's the first of the things that the Buddha breaks it up into. He says, you know, any meaningful talk about being a self is going to be predicated on the sense of physical form. The second is on having a variety of feelings. These are called Vedana, feelings. A lot of time in meditation is often spent actually identifying feelings. But these feelings are very simple. Again, any meaningful talk about being a self would have to include feelings such as I like, I dislike, and I neither like nor dislike. That's it, folks. That covers the full range of your feelings. Liking, disliking, and in a sense, indifference. Not neutrality, but indifference. So the strongest poles of our lives are often in terms of the attraction and the repulsion. With a great grey area in the middle of that which we don't see because we're indifferent too. Now, feelings change. I don't know if you've noticed that. That which we've liked, we no longer like. That which we disliked, we perhaps like. That which we were indifferent to might fall into either of the other categories now. Or that which we like might have fallen into the indifferent category, and so on and so forth. So they're constantly changing. I always think usually, uh, particularly to the annoyance of those that are close to us, I thought you liked that. No, I don't. (laughs) Or vice versa. You know, so those are changing. Again, there's nothing stable about them. And if we want to cling to them, then again we're going to find a degree of unsatisfactoriness attached to them. Also, if these were self, either of these two, for example, the body or the feelings, they would be under our control. The self would be the controller that controlled them. But they're not. They're unstable. Both of them are radically unstable. Thirdly, there is a whole, and it's a big category, and I'm not going to go into too much detail because I could spend a lot of time the rest of the evening talking about this. There's a category called sanya, which is usually translated as perception. It really is much more akin to discrimination that leads to perception. Within this category of sanya, which is the third thing that's required for any meaningful talk about what it is to be a self, there is, has to be a capacity of discrimination. Yeah. A capacity which includes things like memory and language. Technically, in Buddhist texts, this is described as the ability to take an object and mark it for recognition. So what's the chief way that we mark things for recognition? Usually language. In other words, what did you? It's almost biblical, isn't it? What did we first do? Go out and give names to things, so that we can recognise them again. Now, what's required in that? Memory. And in fact, most of who and what we are is dependent on memory. 
the fact that I can remember elements of my childhood, elements of my adolescence, elements of my teenage years, elements of my 30s and 40s and so on and so forth, is dependent on memory. Now, some of those things, as probably with yourselves, you will remember very vividly. Yet there are great lapses and gaps in our memory, so much so that I probably can't remember what I did last week sometimes. So memory is extremely partial, yet in a sense, our sense of self is constructed out of memory, that it is the same thing that was there, present, when I was five, 14, 20, 30, so on and so forth, all the way through. Now, obviously, with the set of, in, onset of degenerative illnesses sometimes, such as brain diseases, people lose their sense of who they are because their memories go. They literally do not know who they are whatsoever. So memory is an extremely important function, but memory is partial. It's a construction. It also changes. Yeah. If you ever have two people's memories about a similar event, you will see that that's very, very different. And over a period of time, they will change as well, their remembrance of a particular event. It's not under our control. <laughs> our memories are not under our control. Have you ever tried to search for something in your memory, in the card index of your uh, of your thoughts and that to try and dig something up. It doesn't happen usually. You know, memory is often involuntary. You know, a smell, a taste, a touch. In fact, the whole of a very famous work, A la Recherche de Temps Perdu, you know, Proust's great work, is all based on memory, on the memories that are evoked by a taste. You know? So, memory is not under our control. It's not self, just like feeling is not self. And the body, rupa, is not self. On to the fourth category. The fourth category here is the category of sankharas, which is a category of that which is constructed and constructing. And here what we mean is the repository of all of our acts, both physical and mental. In other words, you could see almost this in modern terms, that acts, physical, mental, verbal, leave, if you like, neural pathways in the brain. We construct them. We construct those neural pathways. Now, in Buddhist terms, this is simply the repository of karma, of our actions, what we have done. There's never a great sort of mysticism to the word karma, although often in the West I think it gets very kind of mystified. Karma just means action. It's a simple Sanskrit Pali word for action. That's all it means. We can't help but act. And when we act, we set up patterns. Those patterns are not inflexible. They change with time again. So any meaningful talk about a person, a self, has to include a repository of actions as well. And finally, just to kind of cut a long story short, it's uh, consciousness. The final is vinyana, the final thing that, you know, again, is about meaningful talk, about being a self, has to do with consciousness. Consciousness, as it's defined in Buddhist thought, is not a thing. It's arising in dependence on objects. 
It arises in independence on objects such as sankharas, karmic action, on sanya, on perception and discriminations. It arises in dependence on feeling and on body and, of course, the world itself, which is filtered through all of this. So consciousness is not under our control because it's arising and passing away and rising and passing away simply with the object with which it's confronted. That's all. So consciousness and world arise together. There is not consciousness before world and there is not world before consciousness. And what I mean by world here is any meaningful talk of experience of a world. So, what do we have? We have five interrelated processes. None of them static. None of them which can be delineated as self. They are all effectively not self. Hence the reason why the Buddha uses that term. Anatta or anatman means not self, not no self. No self is a very destructive way of looking at this. It's almost like, you know, I had a self yesterday, but now it's gone. Where has it gone? I've got a self-shaped hole somewhere here, you know, where it used to be. It's not like that. There is no self-shaped hole, because there was no fixed self to start with. There is only, and actually this gets much more complex, but I'm just leaving you with the five tonight. There is only these five interrelated processes upon which we affix a label which we term self. That is all. So, let's try and put this in plain English to finish off, just in case I've lost any of you along the way. Instead of self, what we really have is, let's turn it into a verb, selfing. We don't have a fixed self. There is nothing fixed. And from a Buddhist perspective... If we did have a fixed self, well, I'd say, go home. (laughs) There's no point. Because if it was fixed by its very nature, it couldn't change. What are we attempting to do? Well, in doing meditation, in doing metta practice, in doing karuna practice, in doing these things, in doing vipassana and you know, all the various other activities we do in trying to alter our behavior in ordinary life, in being generous, in being kind, all of these things, if there was a fixed self and it was immutably fixed in the sense that it could not be changed, then there would be no point. It would never change anything. It is only because we are a selfing process that all of these things that we engage in have an effect. That my good or my bad actions, let's put it in better language, my wholesome or my unwholesome actions, my wholesome actions being the development of the virtues such as metta, karuna, mudita, vipaka, all of these will have an effect if I attempt a development, because there is nothing fixed and immutable. However, if I, there's the downside to this, if I continue to engage in actions which are unwholesome, then it will continue to have unwholesome outcomes out of it.
So we can move either way. But from the Buddhist perspective, none of us are irredeemable. All of us have a chance. In some senses, from being liberated from the fixity, or the seeming fixity, of unwholesome habits and traits that we might have developed over the course of our lifetime. Whatever it is, it's not fixed. It's not immutable. By its very nature, it will change. So we are selfing, as opposed to selves. There is a title of an academic work, which I really like, called Selfless Persons. That's what we are, persons as opposed to selves. So the Buddha really is talking about personhood, not identity. So there is continuity in this. And the continuity is important rather than the imposition of an identical thing. Within the notion of continuity, there is responsibility as well. Because people often say, well, if there is no self, to what does responsibility adhere? Well, it adheres to the continuum. I could, for example, try to negate my ethical responsibility by saying, well, you know, did that years ago, I'm a different self now, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. I'm no longer, I mean, many of us think this way, don't we? I'm a different self now. <laughs> and in a way, you are. That's exactly what you are. You know, you're not the same self that you were when you were young. You know, there's elements that have you know, continued through in that continuum, and there are elements which have dropped away. You know, your feelings have changed, and your discriminations have changed, and so on and so forth. They've changed. So there's nothing immutable. You know? So you can't get away with saying, well, I'm afraid that was a different self yesterday, you know, even if I stole all your apples. <laughs> Yeah, you can't get away with that one because who you are today depends on who you were yesterday and who you were the day before and the day before that and the day before that and the day before that. You know, the sense of responsibility is not negated by this. In fact, it becomes even more pressing here. You know, that I'm doing things now which are wholesome because of the self that I will become. So it's a constant becoming rather than a sense of being static. So I am a process. Unfortunately, we are misled by the language that we use. We are misled by, for example, the English language and grammar that we have. And European grammars and languages are not that far apart from the way we have it. Most of our grammars work on a subject-predicate basis. That There are experiences, which we call predicates, and there is a subject to which they adhere. Yeah? So, you can't just say happy or sad. You have to say, I am happy, or I am sad, or however you inflect it in another language. So you're always putting a marker, an I, into, in a sense, a place where there isn't an I. Yeah. I am not in the place where I am, <laughs> is in a sense what's going on here. That I is simply a marker. It's just good syntax in English. Um, so much so that the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein once said he... Um, 
he had the vague feeling that the problem of the self was merely a grammatical error. <laughs> you know, it was a product of our grammars, nothing else. <laughs> and in a way, you can see that. You know? We have well-formed locutions, as I often joke about in English, um, and they do, for example, in French and German as well, and most of other European languages, where you have that kind of subject-predicate form but you don't go around looking for the subject. When I say I am happy, oh my word, I'm anguished because there's an I that's happy or sad or whatever it is that you're attached to. Yet when I say it is raining, do I go around looking for it? (laughs) We don't because we understand that as merely a product of grammar. Now, where is this all leading to? The attachment to self. The attachment to self is in some senses something reified. Something which is being built on these processes. An attempt to grasp after something which is changing. To make static. In fact, that's what the very word reify means. To make real or to make static something. So we're attempting to grasp after something which by its very nature is changing. We're grasping. And out of that grasping after self occurs grasping. We're grasping after things. We're grasping after others. We're grasping particularly after ourselves. Many of you will be familiar, um, and I'll finish in a few minutes, um, but many of you will be familiar with a, 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 a myth which was very prevalent in the Middle Ages, um, which even Freud picked up in, you know, kind of in his psychodynamic theory and called it narcissism. Well, this was based on the myth of Narcissus. And most of you will probably know this in some form or another. There's lots of different versions of it, but the most classic version is the myth of the beautiful young knight who... Is called Narcissus, who discovers a still clear pool, looks in and becomes captivated by his own beauty and falls in and drowns. <laughs> that's one version of the myth. Now, I would say that's absolutely a wonderful metaphor for actually what often is going on in terms of ourselves. We are drowning in ourselves. We are absolutely saturated with a sense of self. Now, we might not use that language in modern English. We'd probably use the word ego. Again, it's a very relatively sort of recent invention coming out of Freudianism. We would use this term ego to identify. It's that which wants, that which desires, that which is grasping, that which obfuscates, and this is... really where I wanted to get to with this whole talk this evening, that which obfuscates and blocks the development of wholesome action. It blocks the development of relationship. Now, we all know it. We all know this word. We've probably been accused of it and accused others of it. It's called selfishness. Selfishness, it abounds. A selfishness is the attachment, the grasping after self. 
And what I will do tomorrow night is I'm going to explore that notion and it's how it, in a sense, we see it enacted and why it is blocking all of our activities as long as we continue to grasp after ourselves we cannot develop virtues and in some senses what we're talking about in Buddhist thought and practice is an emptying of self not that your self is going to disappear it's not once there was a self today now conjuring trick there's no self It's that we begin to understand correctly how this thing, this process actually rather than thing, that we label self operates and therefore cease to be under its sway, cease to be under its captivation. What is the myth of Narcissus again? It's the captivation. He falls in love. He's captivated by his own image. The French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan has a funnier version of this, um, which he talks about. And he talks about something in terms of mirrors in societies, you know, and how the child often in the West particularly sees themselves in the mirror and sense, um, forms their sense of self out of what they see in the mirror. Um, but he says it's very different. He says, you know, when you hand an ape a mirror, what happens? Um, it's a very different reaction. Says you hand an ape a mirror, and basically the ape is more intelligent. What it does is it looks in the mirror. <laughs> and looks around the back of it. And as soon as it sees nothing at the back of it, it loses interest. What happens with human beings when they get mirrors? <laughs> forever (laughs) that's the big difference now I'm joking about this but there's something very serious behind this in other words we're in love with ourselves it is the myth of Narcissus both that love and that hate are both sides of the mirror it's both sides of the coin why we love and hate others in the worst possible sense I don't mean this in the sense of meta this is the love and the hate that we bring to our relationships because it's not really love, it's self-love. What I love in you is what is reflected back to me of me. I always remember a group at um, Sharpen once, and, which I was quite close to here where I used to be director of, and I always remember one particular man who was on one of the courses said, there was this was a particularly New York Jewish phenomena. He said, you know, kind of New York Jews would be talking to each other and saying, you know, that's enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> Again, a joke. But, in a sense, what we're looking for is the reflection. And when somebody perhaps no longer becomes the mirror for you, then there is, in conventional terms, a falling out of love. And that's why it becomes hate, or variations on that theme. Because it was never really love in the meta sense of love in the first place. It was never really connectedness. It wasn't about you, it was about me and what was reflected back to me. What was reflected back to the sense of the establishment of some kind of fixed 
notion of the self. Now, I think I'll finish here, and I'll pick this up again tomorrow night. It's too big a topic, really, to deal with, unfortunately, in one night. It's a huge topic. Could, uh, could take the rest of the week, but I'm not going to take the rest of the week. Um, so what I'll do is I'll stop now and pick up some of the themes tomorrow in the more practical sense and really try to try and explore them with you a bit further in relation to our main themes of the week. But I just want to open up to see if there are any questions even at this stage around this or comments. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also it's a, it's a contradiction, maybe, because of the, I, can, uh, um, I can see and I read with the self as a process, but then you, when you're saying that it's constantly becoming, mm-hmm. then it, one could say it's constantly becoming something or mm-hmm. seeking being someone mm-hmm. which is to suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, the self, the, self, the self in its nature is really just process. Yeah. It's really just process. Yeah. In other aspects of Buddhist thought, which probably postdate the formation of the main part of the early teachings, there is a complex analysis of all of this and this process. This process nature of mind and the nature of the self. So it's just broken down into finer and finer and finer categories. There to show that there is nothing fixed within it. What I mean by, in the sense of becoming, it's always becoming something, but it's never a something. It's never at an end. You know, in other words, really, we're never at an end until we're dead. <laughs> you know, that's in a sense the only time we ever really become a self is when we're dead. Um, and then somebody writes an obituary about you, perhaps, if you're lucky enough, <laughs> and says that was the meaning of your life, or something of that form. What I'm really trying to indicate is that that process of becoming is never at an end. It's just going on. You know, so even when we are grasping after a notion of ourself in terms of identity, it's always provisional. Only we just don't see it. That's all. No, it's not meant. It's not meant to indicate that at all. No, because in this term, it's you know what we're calling the self selfing process. You know, it's very awkward language. So please, you know, forgive me for it. But this selfing process is finite. It's not infinite. It's a finite process. There is that thing called death when this particular selfing process comes to an end. Nick first and then. Um, This is quite confusing. Um, What is doing all of this stuff? If there's no self, what is... is, It's almost like the paradox of something not becoming self. Mm. We are using something. No. (laughs) <laughs> we're just really, or, or are we just processes? We are just processes. We are not. Yeah, I mean, the way to the way to really think about it. Um, perhaps again, I'll.
pick this up a bit more tomorrow and explain it a bit more tomorrow night. Really, if you think of a system, an enclosed system, which has all the necessary components for functioning without importing any controller. So, for example, one of the things that makes us think we are a self is there is a degree of control within it. Now, there's one factor, for example, in this enclosed system, you have to bear with me here, in this enclosed system, which is called chetana, volition. There is volition, but volition isn't, in a sense, outside of the system. It's not a volition which is outside, separate, working out of the overall system itself. It's within the system. So everything that's required for change is within that system. There is nothing outside of it. There is nothing over and above. There is no unmoved mover in that. And that is what we're really talking about here. But it's very complex. It's a very, very complex schema. And we really don't have a lot of time to do it in this kind of week. So its complexity gives it the illusion of being... And it's happening so quickly. That's the other thing. Let Let me just give you a very quick analogy for this. I mean... A lot of what we associated with being self is obviously our mental processes. Yeah, our mental processes are you know, often equated. You know, it's the old idea, even going back to medieval periods, of the homunculus in the head. You know, the little man in the head who's the controlling, kind of the steering wheel, <laughs> controlling everything. Um, that's a very crude idea, but in the sense that we have a more refined idea of that for ourselves. What is really, what is really being said is that the speed of which all this process is going is so quick it's a bit like a cine film that's going so fast it gives you an illusion of something happening but there isn't anything outside of the speed of that movement now in many ways in meditation practice what you're doing in trying to understand this selfing process is beginning to slow down the movement see individual phases of the movement see what is involved See, for example, I mean, I'm going very much into this slightly later area of um, Buddhist thought after the Buddhist teaching, primary teaching, which is actually beginning to slow it down and see, for example, in every consciousness moment, there are seven mental factors that have to be there, such as volition, such as sensation, such as contact. You know, and then beginning to see what arises on the back of that, such as you know, um, adosa, you know, non-hatred, love in other words, or dosa, hatred that's arising, which will colour that moment of consciousness. You know, so it's a very complex phenomenon which is arising very, 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 very quickly. Volition is there in the system. You, know, you don't need a controller as such, you know, central control right in the middle of it. But yeah, we'd need a whole evening to talk about this one. It is very complex. Yeah, but I hope that it gives you just a tiny feel for what's, what's going on there. You don't have to posit something unchanging within the change of the processes. Yeah, there is nothing outside of those processes. Yeah, actually, just one the back first and then jump. Well, identity is usually posited on being the same thing. I mean, this is literally what identity means. I mean, it means the same thing. It can mean the essence of the individual, for example. 
Um, you know, I feel, for example, that I am the identical person, perhaps, and most of us will have this as a pretty commonsensical feeling that we are the same person that we were, I don't know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 3 years ago, 2 minutes ago. You know, there's a sense of identity that's coming through. Now, what is being claimed, this, and this is really for you to investigate, this should never be taken as being a kind of, oh, this is the way it is, I'm now a believer in not-self. <laughs> you know, this is to be investigated is to actually see that actually identity is a construction. Any notion of identity is a construction out of lots of different factors coming together. In other words, really there is no identity at all. Identity, the I, which we would use as the first person person pronoun in English, is really only nominal. It's only that which is placed on a... A whole range of things happening very quickly. Personhood, dropping of the sense of identity, doesn't mean you go out of existence. I'm no longer an I anymore, so I go out of existence. That's nonsense. It just means that you begin to see the processes in a different way. You begin to see them as being impermanent and not self. So in other words, any mental state I have is merely the coming together of certain factors. That is all. So, for example, when I'm angry, actually, all it is is the coming together of consciousness with certain mental factors, which we call anger. There is not a self that is angry (laughs) at all. So identity is is, is, in a sense, a spurious positing of something which doesn't change within it. Now, I think even if we examine ourselves, albeit rudimentarily, then we will see that over the course, actually it's not the same self. In fact, that construction of identity is a product of memory. That I think I am the identical person because I can remember this stuff from the past. I can project this sense of identity into the future. And that is all it is. And it's changing, actually. It's not a something. I'll just give you one final thing before I answer Jack's question. One final thing. I don't know if you've ever known how a rope is constructed. No. A rope doesn't have one thread running all the way through it. A rope is a series of overlaying strands which are wrapped together. So actually... Rope's a pretty strong thing, and you think it's one thing, but it's not. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of strands with no one strand running the whole way through. That's like the self. It's not one thing. It's just these overlaying facets, that's all. You know, in other words, what we're talking about, instead of an identical self, we're talking about continuity. So there is a continuity of selfing. Horrible, isn't it? Blech, this language. But it's the only way you can put it. There's no really easy way of putting it in English. Yeah. Yeah, because it's happening quite quickly. You know, the continuity of the mental processes, which are going on very quickly, of actions and events that, are, you know, that we construe as being self... 
are just these overlaid strands. But actually, even that's too static a model in this case. So if you take away nothing, any of you from this evening, it's the kind of idea that it's a, it's a, a process, not a thing that we're dealing with here. Jump, sorry. I'll... If I can allow that continuity going, what is that? Is that self? Is that consciousness? Is that, what can you explain what that is? It's a whole stream of things. It's a whole stream of things, which are both usually labelled as nama and rupa, which is mental processes and physical processes, all codependent which are going on. So it's nothing other than that. Whatever we call a self is other than, nothing other than nama and rupa, codependent, moving, if you like, through life, through time. That's all it is. Nothing other than that. Yeah, Jackie. That's thought process on continuity, that's right, yes. Yeah, and some of that being applicable to memory as well. Yeah. That's what feels like me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. In fact, I mean, um, it's not something the, the Buddha really talks about, but in, in kind of modern terms, you could see it in narrative construction, the way that we construct ourselves in narrative, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Yeah. So that's the narrative that's going on in the head. And I think uh, most of us have stories about our lives. They're different stories most days. And sometimes there's similar stories going on. But they they are narrative constructions that we're constructing. And they're based on fragments of memory and thought processes and everything coming together. I mean, I'm giving a very kind of crude answer here because it's such a complex process the way it's seen in Buddhism. Um, But language is an enormous component of this. Enormous component. Gosh. <laughs> this is going off the subject a bit, really, but mm. I'm very curious. Um, Sri Ramana Maharshi, mm. in English translation, always talks about the self. Mm. Um, and I always thought I knew what that meant. Mm. But after this, I'm like, what, do, what, does, what does that mean in Hinduism? Oh, it does mean the self. <laughs> <laughs> it does mean the unchanging thing. Um, I mean, it's the Atman, because basically Ramana Maharshi is, is an Advaitist, you know, the idea of you know, non-duality. Right. And what he's talking about, there is an unchanging phenomena which is called Brahman. Yes. And if you like, the piece of Brahman within the individual, which is their real self, the self, with the definite article, is the Atman. And there's two forms of Atman. There's that which is called the Paramatman, the Supreme or the Real Atman, and the Jivatman. The Jivatman is that which is changing, which we, is the phenomenal self. The real self doesn't change, and it's identical with the one thing, which doesn't change. And so non-dual Advaita really is about re- realizing the lack of difference between the two. And in many ways, this is the complete opposite of Buddhism. In fact, I gave a lecture quite a number of years ago here called Why Advaita Isn't Buddhism. <laughs> because it isn't. It's working in a certain sense completely differently because it is actually looking to identify the unchanging nature of the self. Yeah. The Buddha just said, actually, and he was very familiar with the early Upanishads on which Advaita was actually built in saying there is no such phenomena 
we cannot find it empirically. It cannot be seen. Yeah. Um, you can't find the Atman. Well, <laughs> I think we have a very good answer for it these days. I think it's called genetics, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of it. Um, I mean, things are so intimately interdependent. I think we're only beginning to get uh, a brief glimpse of the nature of just how interdependent we are. Um, from a Buddhist point of view, a lot of this, in a sense, doesn't really matter. You know, it might be interesting in, in some senses, but a lot of it doesn't really matter. And I, I'm not being dismissive in saying that. What I'm saying is it's not really tied to the task in hand. Um, with the task in hand is really overcoming dukkha. That's what it's about. It's liberation from Remember the Buddha's message. He said, I only teach two things. I teach dukkha and, it's libera- and liberation from it. That's all I teach. He's not interested in anything that's not tied, in a sense, to that question. So I think, yes, we can probably, we'll probably discover further and further and further and further cases of the interdependence of things and the way we're knotted into the nature of what is. But from the Buddhist point of view, I think it's really understanding the interdependence that we need to know, you know to overcome this. You know, he says you know, one famous phrase that some of you will know. He says, you know, I know all the leaves in the forest, but only this handful do you need. You know, to actually overcome this problem. Yeah. So there's lots of interesting questions, but they're only, you know, from the Buddhist point of view, which is very pragmatic. One always has to bear that in mind. He's dealing with human ill. He's dealing with the human malaise, and that is what he's interested in overcoming. You know, there's lots and lots of interesting questions, and actually, there's many you know, speculation in his own time about these big, big questions. But he's saying, don't ask them; they're not really relevant. So I hope that doesn't sound too dismissive. But. <laughs> okay, I think I better draw a line under it now since we're seeing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.